But along the way, some of the biggest challenges that you encounter when you continue to grow is you you have to go through almost a bit of a, a molting process where whatever system and process or people that got the job done before doesn't work anymore. As you continue to grow and you, you kind of reach these next thresholds, you 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 break things and, and you have to find a better process, a better way, or different people uh, that have the requisite experience to take the company to the next level. So it's been one of the most challenging things along the way and rewarding and disappointing, frankly, is being able to, you know, having to go through this, this evolutionary change, you know, every five years or so where you have to kind of molt as an organization. Welcome to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a show about the entrepreneurial pioneers of the modern cannabis industry and the organizations they're building. Each episode features the founder themselves, sharing their life's journey that inspired the entrepreneur within to create the most impactful ideas in modern cannabis. The ability to step away and see the big picture is essential as a leader. It's what allows you to work on the business so that you can then work in the business. As a leader, you have to be able to see the broad view, to formulate a theory, develop strategies, and finally, assemble and inspire your team to get there time and time again. Today's guest exemplifies just that. Through a fundamental belief that business is a series of problems to be solved, through many iterations, he grew his company from selling vaporizers on eBay to a NASDAQ-listed leading global platform for the development and distribution of premium cannabis accessories and lifestyle products. Grab a lemonade, iced tea, or even better, an Otto Palmer, and enjoy the founder's journey of Aaron Locasio, co-founder and CEO of GreenLane. GreenLane has been in the industry, I've been involved in this industry myself since the very beginning for the last 15 years now. So I've seen uh, a tremendous amount of evolution take place over the last 15 years. So some of the challenges and solutions that we brought to the table 15 years ago are very much the same. Uh, and some are, are, are very different uh, than they used to be. So uh, the biggest thing for GreenLane and the solution that we bring to the table is really connecting other entrepreneurs with end consumers. We've taken great pride in being able to find, identify, nurture, and help vendors with products and unique um, items or processes uh, to bring an elevated experience to cannabis consumers but it's very difficult oftentimes for entrepreneurs to connect the dots from an idea to reality. And we have done a, a great job of, of bridging the gap um, uh, between vendors and customers. And it's not just in the traditional sense of, I have a product that I'd like to sell, can you help me distribute it? Uh, oftentimes uh, we encounter entrepreneurs and up-and-coming brands and businesses uh, that are not as familiar with the cannabis industry and its nuances um, and some of the traditional methods of advertising and marketing and go-to-market that they think in other industries would work and, and in other industries do. Uh, but we've been able to bring education to our vendors in a way that help them be successful. And that's really what GreenLane is about. It's a platform for bringing products to market. And our vendors are just as much our customers as are our end users. I love that explanation, Aaron. And that's really why I wanted to have you on the show. We'd like to roll back with all the guests on the show. And first question I have is, tell me about your parents. Sure. Um, my parents are absolutely wonderful, loving people. Uh, they're uh, parents to myself, obviously, and three siblings. So grew up in a, in a big family. Big family. Are you oldest, youngest? Where do you fit in that mix? I am. I am neither. I'm number two. Number, number two. two in the mix. I'm a middle okay. child. Uh, originally grew up in the White Plains, New York area, a little town called Warwick. 
uh, and growing up, uh, actually, ironically, before even before that, before I even remember, I lived in Florida, uh, New York, an even less known town. It's just ironic that I eventually made my way to Florida uh, and love it here dearly. So they got tired of the cold and they're like, we're, we're heading like... They got tired of the cold, right. So I, I, I grew up on 11 acres of land. So uh, moving from 11 acres of land to, you know, in between uh, New York and Florida, we, we made a, a three or four year pit stop in the Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas area, which was also very nice. But yes, progressively got warmer each time we moved uh, and, and eventually made my way to Florida. What prompted such a big family move? What did your parents do? Like, what were their professions? Uh, sure. So, uh, the mother of four kids, uh, you know, my mother was had a full time job just keeping up with the four of us. A relatively tight in age as well. Uh, we're all two year we're all two years apart. And uh, my father's original profession, many 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 decades ago at this point, is he got involved. Uh, in a new technology that he thought was um, very interesting and thought it was going to go somewhere. So he got involved very early on. And at the time, what was little known as called computer programming. Wow. Okay. This is this is back in the 80s. Okay. Uh, and eventually, you know, worked for uh, various software companies uh, and uh, over time became a bit of a project manager for different companies and took took more of a project management role as he continued uh, to build on his career Interesting. Uh, and moved the family uh, from New York to Texas as he took a new position with uh, Motorola at the time. Eventually made it into products and everything. But yes, he's, he got his early start in his career with, with computer programming back when no one even knew what a computer was. So trendsetters uh, or trend uh, spotters run in the family then. So <laughs> Fair enough. That's a skill that you learned from him. Uh, what kind of people were they? Uh, very loving, caring. I mean, just a very wholesome family in, in general, I'd say. I, I'm very fortunate to, uh, to be able to say that uh, my parents are still together to this day. Uh, married many, many decades at this point. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and it's just a very, very good, loving, wholesome family. Would have growing up in number two in a very tight, you know, age range family. Were they, were they your friends or were they your frenemies or... Depends well, on the day of the like week. Like any family, it <laughs> depends on the day of the week. Like any, like any, any, any family. Uh, so I have an older brother and I have two younger sisters, and it was usually the the brother dynamic and the sister dynamic. Uh, so the sisters were uh, loving each other and squabbling with each other, and the brothers were loving each other and squabbling with each other. Uh, it was generally the the ongoing theme. Gotcha. That's excellent. You know, I read in the MG Retail article, probably one of your first forays into entrepreneurship was, was a lemonade stand. And I thought it was a cute story in the, in the article. And I would hope you would share that again. Where, you know, everyone always wants to make some money, but like, where, where, did, the, where did that idea come from? Uh, you know, as, at a very, very young age, for whatever reason, perhaps reasons that I don't even understand myself, uh, you know, I was very driven from an entrepreneurial perspective long before I even understood or appreciated what that was. I mean, I think at the time, uh, I really just wanted to, you know, I was living in Texas and really wanted to buy a bigger super soaker than my I mean, big squirt guns, right? I remember it. We're about the same age. I remember that need. Uh, okay. I got, <laughs> I got to have the big super soaker and they're very expensive. And of course, uh, you know, family of four, middle child. I wasn't, if, whatever I was going to get, I, I was going to, I was going to have to get on my own. Right. Yeah. Um, so of course my parents did encourage me. They said, look, if, if you want to buy something, if you want to buy that, then make money, go make money. So how um, old were you around this time? Like when was so that, this that is, lesson? This is probably around 10, 10, okay. 11, maybe okay. nine, 10, somewhere in the nine, 10, 11 range. So were you sourcing so, funding? Were you just raiding the freezer for what was in there? <laughs> yeah. So it started with uh, great questions. <laughs> so, so one of the first ones was the lemonade stand. So of course my parents were nice enough to fund me with uh, the lemonade mix, if you gotcha. will, to set up the proverbial uh, lemonade stands. So sure enough, I went outside our, 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 our front door uh, in our little uh, 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 suburb, suburban neighborhood in Texas, and uh, started selling lemonade. But of course, uh, traffic was very light, uh, and it didn't do so well, right? And they're selling 50 cents lemonade, 
maybe one car would come by every 15 or 20 or 30 minutes and every third car would buy something. Uh, so I was quickly getting discouraged and disappointed by the fact that uh, it wasn't... What, You're probably using more of the product because it's such a hot day. Yeah, than, it's a hot day. Selling. I'm drinking the lemonade. <laughs> but it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm eating into the profits. Um, but I, 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 for whatever reason, I realized that there was... Uh, one of my biggest issues was customers. I didn't have enough people to advertise to. Uh, and in the neighborhood that we lived in, uh, there was only one way into the neighborhood, one way out. And this neighborhood was relatively large. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of homes in this in this in the neighborhood with one way in, one way out. So I said, you know what? If I get in front of more people, I think I have more success. Uh, so I I picked up the lemonade stand. I put it in a in a wheelbarrow and I wheelbarrowed it the mile and a half to the front of the neighborhood, and I put the lemonade stand right where everyone had to go in and out of the neighborhood, and I set up there. And sure enough, lots of cars, lots of people. And again, same success rate, maybe every third car, someone would come by. Uh, and, and again, it- Your conversion was the same, but the volume, the traffic was volume. a lot better. It's all about the traffic, right? <laughs> so the, so the, the conversion was the same, but the traffic went up. Uh, and then of course, through that process, I'm seeing more people start getting requests. People said, do you have lemonade? Or I'm sorry, do you have iced tea? Uh, or is it just lemonade? And I said, I only have lemonade, but it's good to know. Um, and so I eventually added iced tea and then I did the Arnold Palmer. I think a few people even came by and said, I don't need anything, but it's great to see that you're doing this. Here's, here's two bucks. What? That's uh, great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. It's <laughs> and the Arnold Palmer is a great upsell. I always, I always it buy, is. I always go in, you know, it's a f- cute story, but like it is, you know, now that we're, we're much older, you see iterations like that of like observing your business, knowing it doesn't have to be perfect right away pivoting and growing from there. Um, what did your parents think of all this? So you're, you're showing up with a gas station wad of dollars at the end of the day and, and empty cups. Uh, you know, I, I think my parents gave me a little bit of credit, but not much, you know, good job, um, you know, but the end and move on, you know? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> certainly, you know, it, it got a little bit of credit, but it didn't, it didn't go very far. It was more like now keep doing it yeah. Over and over and over yeah. again. Now go th- and do this every day and you'll, you'll, you'll learn the value of what that super soaker costs to get to that 50 bucks or whatever it was exactly. at the time. Mm-hmm. I like it. So what were some of your jobs growing up after you graduated from the lemonade stand? Um, what did you, what did you do throughout like high school and, and, and college as far as, uh, so, uh, a lot of the basics. So first after the lemonade stand, I did, uh, I sent out flyers. I started mowing people's lawns. Again, sticking with the entrepreneur side of things. Uh, eventually made my way to Florida at that point, uh, old enough to actually legally get a job uh, by then. So I, I applied and it became my first job. My first official job was probably, uh, was as a bus boy. Okay. As a bus boy. Uh, yeah, it's a hard, <laughs> it's a hard job. You, you learned that one. <laughs> hard job, indeed. I did a lot of hard jobs. So I went from bus boy uh, from there, I did uh, concessions at a movie theater. Okay. Uh, so it's a concessionist at a movie theater. Uh, and then like my first kind of, uh, my main job, the one that I stuck at for, for several years, even into my college days, uh, I was a cashier at a car wash. Now, were you with your family in Florida or was that just you who wanted to, to get there? No, I stayed with the whole family moved. So we okay. all moved to Florida. Uh, we all we all moved to South Florida together. Um you know, as, as we all became kind of of college age, uh, we, we kind of all spread out. Uh, my brother went to the University of Florida. I went to school in Central Florida when my sisters just moved to New York. You know, so we kind of uh, started to spread around as, as we became, you know, uh, you know, college age. And this was around early 2000s, right? Yeah, early 2000s. And for the most part, stayed, stayed in Florida. Mm-hmm. And you took a trip. I took a trip. I took a trip. So um, a couple of things. So for whatever reason... Uh, again, for any, any, anyone out there who, who, again, who has an entrepreneurial spirit, I, and I, I continuously want to encourage people to harness uh, any entrepreneurial spirits that they have, um, because for whatever reason, even at an early age, um, I, my desires, my long-term, I mean, I remember graduating high school or being close to graduating high school, and this is the the time in everyone's life when you're asking yourself, what do I want to be when I grow up? Now I actually have to start to decide. I actually have to kind of come to some type of real. It's real. Uh, and, and crazy me, uh, as a teenager entering college, 
my big bright idea wasn't to be an astronaut or a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, I wanted to be the chief financial officer of a Fortune 500 company. That's a very specific passion for a kid to have. What what were some of the things that appealed to you of, was it the lifestyle? Was it the money? Was it the control? Did you just love the the numbers behind the things? Where were those passions coming from to identify I'm a that? Big, I'm a big numbers guy, uh, and I was confident in my ability to manage money. I, I enjoyed it. I felt good at it. Uh, and, and I had, and I still have very tall aspirations to be successful and continue to be successful. And I knew to be the, 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 you know, to be the top, uh, you know, at the pinnacle of success of, of a, of a role as a CFO, you're really talking about fortune 500 or in some cases, even fortune 100 companies. So I had a strong drive and desire to be successful, even at an early age. Uh, and prior to making my, my trip out to, to California, who we'll talk about in a little bit. You know, I was in school, I was in college, uh, studying accounting, studying finance, uh, and I wasn't doing well. Uh, I, I, I effectively almost failed uh, at, you know, my vision of being a CFO of a Fortune 500 company. So it was my first kind of experience of true failure happened in my college days. Oof, that had to be tough because you like you see this pinnacle and you're not even through a four year degree yet trying to trying to get there and you're you're you're, you're struggling. And, and I'm and I've and I've already disrupted what I, I felt like uh, there was no recovering. I, I I've ruined everything. I'm never going to make it. Uh, but I had a tremendous amount of of uh, you know desire and and will to succeed. And I I truly believe that my initial failures in college really helped drive me in the future. Uh, I eventually focused my energy and efforts and, and, and did apply uh, you know, my energy to school and ended up being successful. But in between that, uh, that process, I made a trip to California. I wanna hear about that, but I wanna ask one question first. What were some of the issues that you had initially that you weren't getting that success in college, especially in an area that you felt so passionate about, I, I am I embraced freedom uh-huh. a little too much. Okay. So okay. I, I I enjoyed the the party life. I enjoyed the freedom. I enjoyed just being on my own a little too much. Understood, but it it helped you grow up seeing that I could choose this life and yep. party and and do this and. You could have another life of, I need to, to focus on and get my dream. And you did. Yeah. So good. I'm glad that you, you did that. Um, but maybe, maybe a hangover from part of the party life. You took a trip. I took a trip. So at the time I was uh, going to school in central Florida and I was making kind of this, uh, my annual pilgrimage, if you will, to see a very close friend of mine uh, who lived out in California. I, I grew up in, in Texas and I moved to Florida. He moved to California. And as I was preparing to, to make my annual pilgrimage, I asked some of my closest friends in Florida, I said, hey, um, you know, glass pipes, uh, which was kind of the focus, uh, are a third the price in California than they are in Florida. Hmm. And I said, this is a great opportunity if anyone wants a glass pipe or pipe of some kind to let me know. I'm happy to bring it back for you. And uh, a roommate of mine who later became employee number one and is still with the company to this day uh, asked uh, not for a pipe, but to find something that he had never seen before. So I accepted the challenge. I like that. I made the pilgrimage, yeah. I made the pilgrimage out to California. Uh, took the trip from LA to Venice Beach and which is known for its uh, array of, of, of smoke shops all clustered together and uh, went store to store looking for something I had never seen before. And I eventually came across my first ever vaporizer. And I was certainly very intrigued by the technology. Again, the first time you hear it's vape, not smoke. You go, I don't understand. I, I, I don't, I don't understand it. the words that you are saying. Please explain. I, I don't get it. And this is this is a foreign concept. Uh, so very, very intrigued by vaporization. Uh, I found a winner, right? I found that this this is this is the product that we didn't know we were looking for, but are looking for. 
so the store clerk, uh, of course, uh, was trying to upsell me at the time. So I, I, I ended up buying, uh, based off of my friend's budget, a, a $200 uh, product that was called a, a Voodoo, which no one's heard of. It hasn't existed for more than uh, 12 or 13 years at this point. Um, but at the time was one of the only handful of products you could buy. Uh, but the product I was trying to be upsold to was a volcano vaporizer. Okay. And that's, you know, for those that don't know, could you give us a very quick explanation of the, of the volcano? So the, uh, the easiest way to describe the volcano vaporizer for many, many years, we've, we've called it the Mercedes Benz of vaporization. Uh, it is quite literally a, a highly, it's a, a well-engineered German-made vaporization product uh, that is the most efficacious product, uh, frankly, that probably still exists to this day. It's incredibly well at, at pretty, incredibly good at producing uh, a, a, a tremendous amount of vapor. Mm-hmm. It's a great, great, great product. So, uh, and it, and it, it fills it, up this bag, and, yeah, right? Yeah, and it fills up, and right, and it, and it, so it's like this hot air generator, uh, uh, that you, you load a, a, a filling chamber that uh, inflates a, a, a bag or a balloon. They even have a, a, a whip version these days. Um, and it works incredibly well. And it's, and it's quite literally shaped like a volcano, uh, hence, the, hence the name volcano. So didn't, not my money, didn't have the money to spend $450, $450 which is what the, the product cost. Um, so I brought the $200 uh, vaporizer back to Florida uh, tried it with my my roommate and other friends, and we were, of course, just floored by the experience. Quite literally, uh, possibly. Quite literally, <laughs> figuratively and quite literally. Uh, and I fell in love uh, very quickly with uh, the technology. And even in that moment, sitting around in a circle with with my friends, uh, I was telling them, I said, if, if, you know, if this is as amazing of an experience as it is, I can only imagine what the volcano uh, is like. And right there in that moment, the same uh, friend and roommate who had who I had bought that $200 voodoo vaporizer for uh, was searching on eBay and found the volcano vaporizer for sale on eBay uh, and then was a, a bit puzzled himself when he asked again, how much did you say the store was selling it for? And I said, $450. And he said, that's very strange. And I said, what's strange? He said, it's $550 on eBay. And right in that moment, just a light bulb went off in my head and said, man, you know how hard it was, how many lemonades I had to sell, how many lawns I had to mow, how many weeds I had to pull, uh, how many tables I had to bust, how many hours I had to work at the concession stand or as a cashier uh, at the car wash to make $100. And you're telling me all I have to do is buy one and sell it and I make 100 bucks? Bingo. So that was your spark moment right there. That was my spark moment. That's that's incredible. And you're like, oh, this is easy. Let's dive into this. <laughs> it, so I said, this is easy. Uh, but of course, it was far from easy. Um, I originally tried to go back to the store, call my friend that was still out in California, go down to Venice Beach. Maybe you can negotiate with him, buy three. Maybe it'll give you a better discount. Uh, have you ever, you know, it was like, have you ever sat in LA traffic before? It's going to be a nightmare just to get back down there. Um, you know, so I, I very quickly, uh, was, was met with, with challenge. Uh, and, and there's a saying that, uh, I, that, that, that we use often, uh, that I use often that we talk about internally a lot, uh, that that's held true in this industry for a long time. And anyone who, uh, in any, almost any industry, anyone who who's in an entrepreneurial role, role, I think will, uh, find this, this little tidbit valuable. And that is to, you know, we often tell ourselves that what we do is we we endeavor to persevere, right? There's always a challenge in front of you. There's always another roadblock. There's always another opportunity that is almost there, but there's some type of challenge in the way. And I encourage anyone out there, entrepreneurs especially, um, their life and business is full of challenges. And if you just endeavor to persevere through one challenge at a time, that is what it means to, to ultimately be successful. 
I like that. I like that. It's a very common thread for a lot of the guests on the show. Indeed. How did you see that challenge as an opportunity then? Was that, was that wall initially? Were you trying to go around it, over it? Did you go through it? Yeah. So the next step was, okay, uh, I have an issue. I want the, I wanted this, I want it, uh, access to this product and I don't have access. How do I get access? So I did more research. Who, who makes the product? Where does it come from? Uh, I eventually found that German manufacturer, Storz & Bickel, based out of Tutlingen, Germany. Uh, and I called them unsuccessfully, of course, because I called at two o'clock in the afternoon and they're in German time and that wasn't working out too well. I tried again a couple of days later in between classes. I finally got someone on the phone. They're speaking German. I'm speaking English. They know no English. I know no German. Uh, that wasn't going anywhere, but I didn't want to give up. I kept at it. I kept trying, even though I got, the, you know, I, I made that phone call twice and I, and I, and I, and I got rejected effectively twice. I called again. I called the fourth time. And eventually I called enough times that when one time someone picked up the phone, knew enough English to tell me, call our California office and gave me a phone number. So I did that. And they had, an, they had a small office in Oakland, California. And I called them up and I was connected with someone. And I said, I want to buy your product. And then the next challenge was, of course, no problem. Happy to sell you a product. It's $550. And they said, no, 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 no. I want to buy and resell your product. And they said, well, who are you? What's your business name? I don't have a business. Well, we can't sell to you like that. You, you need a business. I'm Aaron. <laughs> I'm Aaron. It's Aaron. I want to buy, buy this. So, of course, then the next challenge, again, one challenge after another. The next one was, mom, dad, how do I start a business? You don't know. Do you know anyone that may know how to start a business? Great. They connected me with someone who just knew enough and said, hey, keep it small. Start a sole proprietorship. Register a fictitious name in the state of Florida. I went on sunbiz.org. I did a few things, filled out some paperwork, opened up a small little checking account. Uh, and I called Stores and Bickle back a few weeks ago and said, it's Aaron. I have a business now. Was this, was this green line from the beginning? No, believe it or not, the original business name, uh, in my struggles to figure out a business name, uh, I was trying to purposefully find the most generic name I could think of at the time. Remember, I'm, I'm 19 years old at this point. And I'm trying to think of the, the most generic name I could, I could think of because I knew a lot about the internet at an, when the internet was still in its early days. And I knew that the internet was going to be huge. I knew it was going to be a, a, a massive opportunity. Uh, and I admired what Walmart had done for brick and mortar. And I wanted to be, my original idea was to be the Walmart of the internet. I had no resources, of course, to pull that off, but I was going to try anyway. Sam Walton started from somewhere. That's right. That's right. So I called the name, I called the company Warehouse Goods, as generic as I could make it. So I started Warehouse Goods and called up stores and Bickle, said, I want to buy some products. I have a company, it's called Warehouse Goods. And they said, how many do you want to buy? I said, how much the price? And they said, it's $350. So the deal got even better. Luckily, at a very young age, my parents had encouraged me uh, to build credit. Even long, you know, even into my early teenage years, my parents were like, you should build credit. It's important to build credit. Uh, so they... Uh, they encouraged me to open a credit card at a very, very young age just to build credit. So I did that. And at the time I had, and again, I was very, I was good at managing money. Unlike most, most kids who had any credit would just probably max out the credit card and call it a day. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't use my credit card. I, I, I always paid my balance off. I always just paid. I only used what I used to treat it like a checking account. Don't spend what you don't have. And so at the time I had a Citibank credit card with a $3,900 credit limit. Uh, and I, and, and no money in a checking account, no money to my name, as broke as the next college kid. And I maxed out my credit card. I maxed out my credit card and I bought six volcanoes. And they were uh, fine selling you six. They're like, here we they go. They were fine this is selling it. me six. I said, no worry. And again, remember, this is very early days for stores and Bickle as well. So they were encouraged to see other young entrepreneurs wanting to get involved. And I sold the, uh, the volcano exclusively on eBay because I saw that as a great marketplace. And you already knew an established price for your product there. So you had a nice $200 spread. 
I did, but I had to compete, right? I wasn't, well, I wasn't the only one selling on there. Uh, so I was a huge believer in service. I said, I'm never going to win on price. It's a losing proposition to try to battle on price. Uh, but I am very confident I can battle on service. I'm going to go above and beyond people's expectations uh, to really build the business around service. Uh, and it, and it'll be, again, another saying that we have internally that we constantly uh, talk about is uh, to simply meet customers' expectations is considered a failure. Success means exceeding them. And it's very, very important. It's ingrained in everything that we do. Those are good North Stars to have. So built the business on service. And lo and behold, I wasn't selling one, but I was selling three, four, five of these devices a week. Were you drop shipping right from them or were they shipped to you and then you'd ship out? Or No, I would buy, I would buy it. I wanted it in my possession. I wanted to see it, touch it, feel it, because it was, again, part of the experience, of the customer experience. I wanted to control everything about it. Um, so the way I packed it, the way I shifted, how quickly I got it out the door. I wanted to be, have as much control as possible, uh, to not leave any variables, uh, outside of my control. Uh, so bought the product, had it shipped to me from, from their Oakland office in California and, uh, drop shipped the product or, or I shipped the product directly myself uh, to the customers. If you're selling on eBay, how are you delivering excellent customer service? Did you have like a phone number up there? I had phone numbers. I took, uh, I think again, very big for the internet. Again, this is, this is old school internet, early two thousands. Uh, uh, it, it, the internet has evolved a lot since then, but, uh, even taking really, really high quality photographs, uh, was a very, very, very important aspect of, of, of providing customers, um, you know, service, just to being able to see as close as you can get to seeing and touching and feeling the product as possible required very, very high quality photos. Uh, I would, I would answer my phone early. I'd answer it late. I, on the weekends, I'd, I'd reply, uh, to people's emails in, in five minutes, not five hours, uh, and anything and everything that I could. And it didn't matter if I was in class. It didn't matter if I was, I was in the gym. Everything was forwarded to my cell phone. I would stop what I was doing. I'd see the, that, uh, someone was calling into the work number. I'd pick it up, I'd get a piece of paper and a pen and I'd write it down, whatever it was. Uh, and I just handle it right there in the spot 24 seven, whenever, whenever someone needed me, I would just drop what I'm doing and, and, and take care of them. Uh, over the time I, I gave like free little gifts and bonuses and surprises and things to just, to, again, try to exceed what people's expectations were. Even the things like someone placing an order at, at, at 5 PM in the afternoon and knowing that the post office uh, didn't close until 6 p.m. near me. I had a, a narrow window of time to get it out that same day. Uh, and I would go out of my way to really try to uh, deliver way above uh, people's expectations. When did you start expanding from from the volcano? Um, I'm assuming you got terms through them, you know, credit through them to, to, to grow on even further. But you're not going to become the Walmart of the internet by by selling this one niche product, what would that next pivot look like for you guys and branching out from there? Uh, so uh, no credit, no credit from, from any vendors, uh, especially again, early days, this is uh, everyone, everything was pay in advance, pay in advance. Best case scenario, it was 50% deposit, 50% before we ship it to you. Um, but but very, not, not advantageous credit terms. So it was very much a, uh, whatever money you make, reinvest it. And as the reinvestment kept occurring and the volumes increased, prices went down, gave more room, more margin to reinvest more. I eventually, again, building on the idea of I want to be the Walmart of, of the internet, uh, I started selling home audio equipment, small kitchen appliances, literally anything I could get my hands on because I, you know, there, it's such a big world out there. There's so many different products you could sell. I had to start somewhere. So I just kind of uh, pick the path of least resistance in terms of products I can get my hands on uh, and make margin on. And those things were um, things that you knew and you knew you could make margin on those. I mean, yeah, I mean, again, it was a lot of, do you know, anyone, you know, uh, how can I make money? Where, you know, wh where can I find products and uh, just networking with friends and parents and friends of friends and trying to find products to sell. Were you still on eBay at this point? Yep. So I, even, even before eBay was eBay, I was selling on a place called One Web Place. That doesn't even exist anymore. This is like a, one of the original uh, auction sites. This is just way back in the day, right? Um, 
but only on eBay in 05, only on eBay in 06. Uh, in 07 uh, is when I really started to see, I said, you know what? eBay is just one, one place, one niche of the market. Uh, we can do more. I can, you know, and, and it's time to build a, an e-commerce presence. Uh, but right in that moment, as it turned into 2008, uh, you had the, the financial crisis of 08. Um, and all the home audio equipment and kitchen appliances and everything I was selling uh, just went right down the drain. Nobody was buying uh, anything. Nobody was buying anything, except vaporizers continued to gain awareness and popularity. So while everything was declining, vaporization was on their upward trend. Okay. And that was the moment that I said, I, we are gonna I'm going to focus all my energy and efforts on vaporization products. This is, this is where it's going to be. So instead of going wide and being the Walmart, you went narrow. I went narrow. Hey, everyone. It's Brian Weber here. Just wanted to pause for a quick second and thank you all for listening and all the positive feedback and support we've received about the show. It means a great deal. I need to ask you for a small favor that won't cost anything but a minute of your time, and it would mean the world to this show and our guests. Somehow, this show about the founders of the modern cannabis industry is not showing up when searching for cannabis or entrepreneur in many of the podcast platforms. That's obviously a big problem for a show about cannabis entrepreneurs. One of the things we can do to solve that is with reviews giving just one minute of your time to submit a review of this show, using the words cannabis and entrepreneur in it will help us get found so we can keep sharing these amazing founders journeys. For new listeners, I really hope you consider this after enjoying this show. For our continuing listeners, if you can do this right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. Go ahead, hit pause, I'll wait right here. Thank you. What was that moment when you realized that you're a numbers guy? I'm assuming you were looking at your sales and seeing what's selling and all these blenders that are sitting around not. Um, what was that moment look like for you when you realized, oh, this is the path? So, I mean, it was, again, a, a, lot, of, uh, a, a lot of work for very little return on anything but the vaporization product. So it was really about how do I maximize what I have here? And again, vaporization was continuing to grow. It wasn't just Volcano anymore. It was... Vapor Brothers and Vapor Juarez and Voodoo and Vapier and a bunch of brand names that people don't even know of anymore or hear of, but uh, there was a growing number of products available uh, and, and it was very important that I stay ahead of the curve. And again, this is, this is back in the time when I had to do a tremendous amount of effort and energy to identify products and find entrepreneurs because they didn't know who I was. They didn't know that I, I existed. So I had to go out of my way to find them. Um, so I, I really devoted all the energy there because I knew that I had something. And I love the technology so much myself. I mean, I like home audio equipment. It's, it's, it's great. And toaster ovens and things like that. But uh, not quite as, as uh, passionate as I was uh, about vaporization products. So the combination of my, my passion and the growth that I continued to see and the opportunity, uh, I just narrowed all my focus into the vaporization category. Okay, so this was 2008. Yep. Were you making a salary on this then? Were you were you living off the profits on this? Was was it like was this a real business at this point, or was this still a bit of a side hustle for you? So in around again, so you keep in mind, I'm a broke a broke college student in 05, uh, 06, 07. Uh, I started to actually, you know, I was I was I wasn't taking a salary out of the business, but the the, the company was making enough money. Uh, that that you could I, I could support myself. I mean, in the early days, uh, again, I'm, I'm I'm now 20, 21, 22 years old, uh, and I'm making 50, 60, 70 thousand dollars a year in the early 2000s as a, as a 21, 22 year old. No one was doing that, uh, so I felt very, very, very fortunate uh, to be making that kind of money. But again, I, I was being very careful to take it the least amount of money possible, just enough to live, just enough to eat food, just enough to pay for the rent in the apartment that I shared with four other people. Just a sustainable living to keep that business going because you knew you had something. So I can keep reinvesting. It needed it needed money. It constantly needed money because growth requires capital and no one was giving financing. There was no bank loans. Uh, every, occasionally, uh, you know, taxes were due. 
which would be a very tough time because it required a lot of cash to pay taxes. So every once in a while, I'd reach out to my uncle and ask for a short-term loan to pay my taxes and pay him back, which we which worked out for a couple of years. Um, but in 2008, while we were building an e-commerce presence, which was now again we gave it a name, now it was Vape World. It was no longer Warehouse Goods. It was it was Vape World. It was Warehouse Goods DBA Vape World, and and the website was Vape World. Uh, and put all my energy and effort into building that. But at the same time, some of those other products that I just mentioned, I was buying from uh, not directly from manufacturer. While I was doing some direct from manufacturer, I was buying some from a wholesale distributor. Mm-hmm. And I was growing increasingly frustrated by the experiences that I was having with this wholesale distributor. And at the time, there was no one else to turn to. And I said, this is becoming more increasingly frustrating. If I'm having this type of experience and I'm buying a decent amount of product at this point, someone can do a better job than they are. And that someone's me. I want to do a better job. And this is a big pivot. You're no longer reselling products. You're no longer just an e-commerce company. You're going to become a wholesale and, and, and distributor with an e-commerce channel to sell That's it on right. your own. That's a big mindset pivot right there. I mean, they must have been horrible to work with. They were um, terrible. Terrible. Yeah. So what what did that moment look like for you? Or when would that, like, you're like, there's just got to be a better way. Like, I'm just tired of dealing with POs and nobody calling me back or whatever else. Like... You were just like so frustrated with that. I was so frustrated and I remember it very, uh, very clearly because at this point I had uh, hired a couple of employees, right? Which of course were my closest friends because um, because why not? We're all having a good time together. Why not work with your best friends, right? Why not work with your best friends? Why not? It's, it's a great idea. Um, so I remember in that moment, I said, you know, I, I, I turned to my friends and I said, we're going to sell to stores. We're going to wholesale these products. And of course, the, the immediate response was, how are we going to do that? And I, and I said, I don't know. Go get <laughs> we'll the phone book. <laughs> just get the phone. Let's just start calling people. I had no, again, I, this is all new experiences for me as well. So just literally pick, pick up a phone book, find a local smoke shop and call them. And I started local, right? I, I, I had to have something to provide an extra level of service. Why would anyone switch? I know they had people were experiencing and bad experiences, but... Uh, I didn't. I, w- I was still very, very small, and I didn't want to seem like a threat to anyone uh, because, I, I, again, I was in a vulnerable position if I tried to go too hard, too fast. At least you know you can go there, look them in the face, and shake their hand and be like, "Hey, that's right. I'm Aaron. This is what we're trying to do." That's right. And the and the competitor was in California, thousands of miles away. I'm in Florida, so I called up some local shops and I said, "My name's Aaron. Uh, I'm local." I, I don't know if you're buying these products, but if you are, I'd love to sell them to you. Buy local. Uh, and they said, that sounds interesting. Um, I'd love to chat more. I said, how about I come and meet you? So I went to their stores and I met them face to face. And I, I told them who I am and what I'm trying to do and and and, and the value that, that I'm trying to bring them. Uh, and, and I was successful at that, just starting very small, very localized, grassroots, driving to stores, building relationships one at a time. Uh, and sell, selling them their vaporization products to supply their stores. Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the biggest challenges of getting into being a distributor is you need to get a lot of product that is in demand and being able to sometimes even have to offer terms out to to those local stores. So there's a huge capital raise to, to get into that business. Was that one of your biggest challenges or something else? So capital was always a challenge for many, 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 many years. Again, because I was not getting terms from any of my uh, suppliers. Uh, a lot of the stores like to uh, use credit cards. So it was fortunate there. Uh, credit terms weren't a big thing because none of the stores had really... Um, had been at the time been receiving credit terms, but you had to you had to have credit cards. You have to do credit cards. A lot of COD, uh, which is still uh, as crazy as it is, a big thing. Uh, I, I feel like we're probably one of the biggest COD clients for the major shipping carriers out there that still are in existence. One unique area of the cannabis industry, people are COD. <laughs> Indeed, COD, cash on delivery. So, did you find funding for that, or so again, all of it reinvest, reinvest, reinvest. It wasn't until um, 
again, more adversity, more challenge kind of took place. So now fast forward a few years, we had built a meaningful business, you know, maybe uh, at the time was probably doing $6 million a year in revenue, seven, $8 million a year in revenue, um, you know, profiting hundreds of thousands of dollars still in my uh, mid twenties, very successful by, by all accounts. Uh, but more competition had come to the space. There was more challenges, uh, and, and people were coming in and, and competing on, on price more than, uh, than service. And, uh, there was a growing number of, of challenges and adversity and things that were, were roadblocks to success. Um, and I was getting, I was becoming very discouraged, uh, and tired and, and it was a lot of hard work. Um, but I, I, again, I had a lot, I still knew it was very, very early on, but right in that moment, um, I, I, I got a very, uh, important phone call from a friendly competitor of mine, um, who is my co-founder. His name is Adam Schoenfeld. And at the time him and I were, uh, friendly competitors and he called me up one day and he and, uh, he was a very direct, uh, person. Uh, and said, I, I want to meet. That, that uh, I'm in New York. Come, come see me. We, we need to talk about some things. So I went up to New York to see him, uh, and, and just flat out, he's like, we should merge our businesses. Uh, and he had built a very nice business for himself. Was he in the same line as you guys, just focusing on vapes and and doing that? Just focusing on vapes. He he went even narrower than I did. He was focused exclusively on the volcano vaporizer. He said. I'm going to sell the most volcano vaporizers, period. I wanted to go a little bit wider. I said, I love vaporization. I love the volcano, but I want to be all things vapor. He was just number one volcano guy, just selling tons and tons of volcanoes. Did he have the same mindset as you as a service first? Did. Very similar personalities. Uh, he, he he took service very, very to heart. So we, we had a lot of uh, things and beliefs in common, which which was great. Uh, and it was a great moment for him to reach out to me because, uh, you know, I am a firm believer that you are only as good as the people you surround yourself with. Uh, and, and he's a very intelligent person, very successful in his, in his own rights. Um, and two heads are certainly better than one. So we joined forces. This is in, in 2010. Uh, and in 2010 to 2011 and 12, we had grown from at the time, eight million to sixteen and a half million, and from sixteen and a half million to forty-four million the next year. Uh, so we together experienced tremendous amount of, of growth and success, which that uh, did require financing. So we were fortunate enough, again, having uh, very careful money management along the way, that we were able to appeal uh, with the help of, of at this point now we had hired a CFO. Uh, between having a, a proper CFO in place, audited financials, which no one was doing in, in the cannabis, early cannabis. Who's that? Who has audited financials? No one even knew what that was. Um, and, you know, careful money management and a proper CFO, we were able to get uh, a line of credit. Wow. Uh, that no one else, no one else could get, right? That must have been some interview of, of you interviewing what would have been your, your, your former dream job. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, listen, Indeed. this was supposed to be my dream job. I'm CEO, but. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. Did that service first mentality persevere in the long run? Did you identify that as a part of your secret sauce in, in, in that massive growth? Yeah, so, so service is still very critical. Um, but, you know, w- with the things that are happening these days and, and, and Amazon's two-hour delivery, I mean, people's expectations in terms of service are, are incredibly high at this point. They have, uh, we, we, get, we, we get emails still to this day uh, when someone places an order at 10 o'clock at night, why they didn't receive their package at 8 o'clock the next morning. Um, you know, so, so the expectations of, of clients are, are, are quite high at this point. Um, so while it's still very important, at the end of the day, you know, we're all people and you're dealing with people. Uh, so relationships and relationship building um, is, is equally as important. Just, just having a good relationship with, with all your customers, with all your vendors is, is uh, very critical to long-term success. So you're going through that massive growth period. So for 2010 is the merger um, and you're going through that massive growth period you know, with your co-founder. How was it having a co-founder 
during that time. That's a huge leap in, in being solopreneur and then, and then having a, a co-founder join. Huge leap, huge leap. I, uh, you know, it's uh, much, much like a relationship that you would have and that I have with, with siblings, right? So uh, a lot, a tremendous amount of, of, of love and respect, uh, but, but plenty of things to argue about as well. Yeah. Uh, so again, I, I, having the dynamic of, of growing up in a, in a, in a big family, I, uh, uh, you know, it, it was, it was certainly, uh, ups and downs, but, but certainly manageable and, and, and still to this day have a tremendous relationship, uh, and friendship, uh, with, with Adam. But yes, along the way, sure. No, no shortage of challenge. He now handles, is it customer development or relations? Uh, Adam is the chief strategy officer. So he focuses very, uh, you know, the way we describe it is he focuses on the business from the outside in while I'm focusing on the inside out. I'm, I'm, I'm a very operational CEO. Um, I have my, my finger on the pulse of the organization on, on a daily basis, uh, working through any number of, of challenges or roadblocks and, and, you know, that are, uh, that, that uh, are in the way of us continuing to, to grow and succeed uh, and flourish as an organization. Uh, and Adams Prairie is, is tremendous at helping identify uh, new opportunities uh, and, and, and new paths to uh, generating more success. And, and we, we have a really strong yin-yang balance between the two of us uh, in terms of being able to identify opportunities, solidify which ones uh, represent the, 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 the greatest opportunity for success with the least amount of risk. Uh, and then executing on that. That's um, that's a good balance to have. That's actually a necessary balance to have during that growth period until you guys, you know, and, and now even ongoing, you guys went public in, in, in on the Nasdaq in, in 2019. Your logistical presence just got huge in, in what you do and your market ranges. So you're no longer just a vape store with a warehouse behind it and distributing to local vendors. You guys have four revenue channels. You're doing B2B, CPG. Um, direct to consumer through your different e-commerce sites, uh, you'll drop ship and, and you're also doing supplying and packaging and even have some of your own in-house brands that you guys have developed as well. Mm. That's a rocket ship to hold on to during that time. Can you share with me some, some of those stories during that time frame of really the structural elements that came into place of like, we're going to be a, a, a larger wholesale for this market and, and grow by domination there? So again, a lot of it's continued to be built on that that service aspect, which is why we got so far and so wide, really servicing all these different customers. It started with that eBay, which eventually became our channel and dropship that you just uh, mentioned, uh, which we eventually started dropshipping on behalf of other websites and other online sellers. Uh, we had our website direct to consumer, all coming out of the same facilities. Uh, I described the B2B that we did. And then eventually we saw uh, as cannabis legalization continued to sweep the nation, that there was a real opportunity to sell products to the enterprise level cannabis customers. But it was definitely a continued evolution of ad resources, ad distribution, ad facilities, branch out internationally. It certainly didn't all happen at once. It happened over time. Uh, but along the way, some of the biggest challenges that you encounter when you continue to grow um, is you, you have to go through almost... Uh, a bit of a, a molting process where whatever system and process or people that got the job done before uh, doesn't work anymore. As you continue to grow and you, you kind of reach these next thresholds, um, you, you, you break things uh, and, and you have to find a better process, a better way, uh, or different people that have the requisite experience to take the company to the next level. So it's been one of the most challenging things along the way uh, and rewarding and disappointing, frankly, is being able to, you know, having to go through this, this evolutionary change, uh, you know, every five years or so where you have to, to kind of molt as an organization. You guys have a lot of data that comes through and you guys have a number of house brands. Marley Natural products, I think, look exceptional with the, with the wood on those. I, those caught my eye very well. Thank you. When did that concept of like, we need to start making our own stuff come around? So the concept of being able to, so we had, you know, uh, really focus our energy and efforts on, on making our own brands. 
Uh, about uh, two years ago is when we first really started. I had that, that, that thought process, that idea. And it was for a couple of different reasons. Um, you know, we, I'm a big fan of, of third-party distribution. We've worked with, with these brand partners of ours for many, many years, and, and we'll continue to do so for many, many more years. Uh, but there, we, with all the data that we have, that we've aggregated and collected for the last 15 years and being able to look directly at consumers and their purchasing patterns and behaviors and, and being kind of like a go-to source for all these different products, we, we honed our ability to identify these white spaces in the marketplace where customers, just like back all going back to the lemonade stand where someone says, I want iced tea, um, you know, uh, but we didn't have it. You know, customers are constantly reaching out and asking for products or looking for things that, uh, that either don't exist or we don't have. Um, and we have honed the ability in the last couple of years to start filling those white spaces with our own brands, our own products, which again feeds uh, an improved margin profile, uh, uh, gives us more uh, control and access direct to consumers, uh, and is really a meaningful part of what will be our go forward uh, strategy and go forward. So we'll always be an important uh, part of the third party distribution, but being able to um, hybridize that with our own uh, Green Lane brands is, is really. Uh, an important part of, of, of Greenland's future. Don't want to skip over this, but you guys decided to go public in 2019. Why? So as the, the industry continued to grow and mature, uh, there was a growing uh, belief and understanding that as the industry continued to mature, consolidation was going to take place. And we had been propositioned and, and talked, uh, you know, by, by various public companies in the very, very, very early days uh, when there really was no companies and, and they weren't uh, good companies and they shouldn't have been public in the first place, um, you know. But but nonetheless, they 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 had uh, a, a public currency. But we kind of, so we just kind of, we listened, but we just kind of stayed in the background. And what happened over time is. Um, we started to make some acquisitions. Um, we made an acquisition of one of our competitors, uh, a company called Vapor Nation, uh, which was great. Brought them into the fold, really grew our business. And they're uh, over in Europe, right? No, no. Vapor Nation was actually based out of California. You're thinking of ARI Logistics Conscious Whole. So that only happened a year ago as a public company. But there was a there was uh, an acquisition that we were that we were really interested in making around that same time, and uh, you know as opposed to uh, doing an equity uh, deal like we did with for Vapor Nation, uh, they were in, very interested in a uh, a cash deal. It's very important them you know cash offer. Uh, so we analyzed their business. We went through due diligence very carefully, uh, and we made. Uh, than what we believe to be a very meaningful offer. Uh, we didn't hear from them for a couple of weeks, seemed a little bit strange. Uh, finally, they reached out to us and said, we're sorry, we're declining your deal. And I said, why is that? And they said, uh, we got a better deal. Um, I said, do you mind if I ask what the better deal is? Maybe there's something we can do. Figuring that someone someone was bidding outbidding me by 5% or 10% or something like that. Uh, and I was outbid by like 5X. Oh wow! And I and I couldn't I couldn't fathom it. I couldn't quite understand how that was possible. But when I learned uh, that it was really a public company uh, who had it again a, a, a at the time a tremendous valuation uh, for what was a very 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 small company, far smaller than we were, um, I realized in that moment that I was at we were at a extreme disadvantage. Uh, and would continue to to lose potential aggregation opportunities uh, to public companies as it became public. You know, the public markets in the in the, in the space became more and more serious, uh, and more and more serious companies were getting involved. So I, we saw that as, as as much of a a threat, frankly, as it was an opportunity. Going public is just such a huge thing, and especially in such a well, you know, you're not necessarily as plant touching as some of these other companies are. It's there's still a lot you guys have to consider to to have to go through that. Indeed, 
And of course, again, staying with the theme of, of, uh, you know, compliance and doing everything above board and the way that we conducted ourselves, even back in the early days that I described how we were able to uh, get financing that no one else could get because we had audited financials and, and we managed our money very carefully and our business very carefully. And we had consummate professionals everywhere around us, um, you know, at the time or leading up to when we, when we went public, uh, it seemed like all the companies going public were doing these reverse mergers, Canadian stock exchange, and perhaps it, that has worked for, for many. Um, but for us, again, we wanted to really uh, leverage the fact that, that we had taken such great care with everything that we did as an organization uh, to be in compliance with every applicable law there is. Uh, and we decided that it would be a lot more work, uh, but it was the right thing to do uh, for the company and for its shareholders uh, to do the first ever IPO of its kind on a major U.S. stock exchange. That's that's amazing. Congratulations on that. But I know it's a huge decision to have to go through and a huge undertaking, but the values that you guys had previously, I'm sure, helped. Uh, to be ready for such a thing. What are some of the trends that you're seeing for products, whether it's sustainability, whether it's with COVID, everybody wants at home now? Like, what are some of those things that, that you're seeing as trends uh, going into 20, after 2020, especially, but going into the future? So first and foremost, Garen Angel, uh, CEO and founder of uh, Magical Butter, another great entrepreneur, tremendous amount of, of uh, respect for him and, and, and great relationship with him. And, you know, kudos for all his his success. But I, what I find uh, in this space and, and, and around like uh, consumer habits, well, it shifts around a bit, uh, you know, concentrates were a big thing that, that, that uh, in the last uh, five, six, seven years that frankly didn't really exist before that. Uh, there seems to be a, re- a resurgence in, in, in uh, flower consumption, uh, edibles are gaining traction. Uh, long story short, uh, everyone, much much in the same way that uh, you know people uh, consume alcohol or, or any number of other uh, other industries and other other things, uh, everyone has a preference. Everyone has their own uh, way that they want to do it, their own experience that they want to experience. Uh, so what I find is um, not necessarily any one thing. It's really. Uh, trying to cater to all the different uh, ways that people want to experience uh, cannabis directly. We're in the generation me right now. Everybody wants it their way, customized for them. And That's right. Technology can hopefully deliver on that. Aaron, I really appreciate your time. I know we're bumping up against our, our time window here, but I, I do have a few closing questions. One is throughout all this, and it's a tremendous amount of stress that you've gone through. What is, how do you keep your sanity? Like, what is your moments of Zen throughout the day that you can focus on to, to, to relieve some of that stress? So, uh, I mean, again, it's great to have a phenomenal team around me. You're only as good as the people around you. So having that, that, that support system, uh, is very, very critical outside of of business, how I, uh, decompress, uh, besides spending time, uh, with my, my wife and, and two young children. I'm a big, uh, a big fan of fishing, deep sea fishing. I uh, have been for many years, so that it's it's a bit of my uh, my escape, my zen. That's your that's your zen moment. Uh, is the open ocean. I, I I dig it. I'm a sailor myself, so I can relate. Getting out in the water. What are some cannabis or even non cannabis founders that have inspired you, either through their values or or through their work? Uh, you know, so so a handful of of, of big ones, obviously. Um, you know, the Sam Walton, of course, for everything that uh, he accomplished in, in his lifetime, uh, big fan of, of, of Walt Disney for his, uh, his, his visionary, um, uh, also a fan of, of, of Elon Musk, if you will, uh, for, uh, you know, more than anything, you know, again, being a, a visionary, but, uh, going against the grain and not, and, and frankly, just, uh, listening to himself exclusively. Uh, and not caring very much about what the world thinks around him. And it's really, uh, it, it's a challenging thing to do to really just, uh, you know, uh, just be so focused on what you believe in, despite what anyone else thinks or says or acts. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. So just uh, 
and, and again, I, I love the fact that he's launching rocket ships. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, uh, pretty, yeah. Pretty and that's that's one of his amazing businesses. So uh, exactly. he almost gets brought up every single time on, the, I'm sure. on, on, on for that question. And the last one is, uh, what is the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, so so uh, LinkedIn's a great one. Uh, anyone who wants to reach out, encourage, encourage to, to reach out uh, via LinkedIn. Uh, otherwise, uh, I can always be be reached through uh, the Green Lane directory, which, which is uh, on gnlm.com, soon to be greenlane.com. Um, and, uh, and I'm an open book. I, 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 take, I occasionally take uh, uh, customer calls myself still to this day. I enjoy it uh, occasionally. I like that, like the, uh, the yeah. little bit of a Zappos mindset on that one. And just uh, you want to hear from people direct. I like that. Well, Aaron, I, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for sharing your founder's journey with our audience. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Lit Up, a founder's journey, a Lit Up media production. I'm your host, Brian Weber. This episode was produced by Anthony Morgola, edited by Brian Weber and Anthony Morgola, theme music by Justin Cruz of Cruise Control Music. Links from today's episodes are available in our show notes. If you received any value from our show, please take a second and leave a review in iTunes and share with your friends and colleagues. It really helps. You can connect with us on our website, litupfounders.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at litupfounders, and on LinkedIn at litupmedia. Finally, our email address is feedback at litupmedia.com. Thanks for listening and sharing the journey.